Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, which brings scholarly expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is Ellen Chesler, and I'm a visiting research scholar at RBI doing work on the historical contributions uh, made by women in shaping human rights and development practice and policy at the United Nations and around the world. This week, uh, the UN Economic and Social Council is uh, hosting a high-level meeting to discuss the sustainable development goals. So it seemed a uh, good time to talk about uh, this new mechanism for judging uh, development and assessing development um, around the world um, that has been in effect since 2015, so we're in year six. Um, 43 countries will be presenting uh, voluntary assessments or findings of how they're doing. I am fortunate today to be joined by an expert in the field of women and development. Uh, Anju Maholtra uh, is a recognized leader on gender uh, equality, uh, development, reproductive health. She is currently a principal visiting fellow at the UN University International Institute of Global Health. For eight years, she headed UNICEF's work on gender, building and guiding the organization's resources, commitment, capacity, and results to introduce gender as an, an analytical tool and uh, across all of its programs. Uh, she was a leader in shaping the SDG target around child marriage and adolescent girls. Prior to being at UNICEF, she was uh, an analyst at the International Center for Research on Women, known as ICRW, for 14 years. She holds a PhD in demography and sociology from the University of Michigan. Welcome, Anju. Thank uh, you very much, Ellen. I guess the way to start a conversation on the SDGs is to tell our audience what they are. It's a long list. Number one, no poverty. Number two, zero hunger. Number three, good health and well-being four, quality education, five, gender equality, cross-cutting tool across all of the others, clean water and sanitation, affordable and clean energy, decent work and economic growth, industry, innovation, infrastructure, uh, reduce inequalities, sustainable cities, responsible consumption and production, climate action, peace, justice, strong institutions, partnerships to achieve all of these goals. Uh, you see my drift here. I guess 
from a charitable perspective, one could say this list of 17 certainly worthy objectives to be realized with, I, I read this from the website, 169 targets, 5,448 independent actions, over 1,300 publications, 3,000 events, is a worthy uh, way of shaping aspirations for a better world. Tom Weiss, uh, the longtime head of RBI, the Ralph Bunch Institute, um, who's written really an extraordinary intellectual history, or not written it himself, but he wrote one book uh, on the intellectual history of the UN that shaped a many, many year project, makes the point that the institution, the UN's value added, is really not in what it does, but in, in its the ideas and the policies, it's in its aspirations, the ideas that it puts forward, the normative innovations and standards that it set. In Tom's words, in a recent uh, piece that he wrote in Pass Blue, the popular blog uh, about the UN, he points out that the SDGs provide an international framework for development, for measuring and comparing economic and social progress, combining growth with poverty reduction, and making development environmentally sustainable. Uh, again, quoting Tom, who is a gorgeous writer as well as a, I think, profound thinker. <laughs> I can make this my love letter to Tom Weiss. The world would be a poorer and less humane place without the aspirations expressed in a tool like the SDGs. More skeptically or unkindly, however, as Tom also points out in this piece, uh, is a metaphor um, that he takes from the always provocative development scholar Bill Easterly, William Easterly, who called the SDGs a kitchen sink of objectives without priorities or sequency. Easterly, who's a, a provocateur, as I said, suggests another meaning for the acronym SDG, senseless, dreamy, garbled. So first question for Anju, you've spent a decade uh, at UNICEF as an analyst and shaper of how to measure progress around development goals and gender. Uh, what's your top line takeaway from this experience? What's your overall assessment of the value of this exercise? Um, we are on this spectrum between you know, shaping aspirations and being senseless, dreamy, and garbled. Do you see the SDGs? This is a sort of a big question, but I think we should start big and then drill down into specifics. Thanks, Ellen, for having me. And uh, thanks for uh, asking this very profound, large question. Um, I think that uh, I would probably say that both Tom and Bill Easterly are right. Sustainable development goals are both a very important normative framework, uh, an aspirational articulation that brings the world together in uh, stating where we want to be going, what we want to be doing. And given that we live in a very, very globalized world, uh, it's important that every country in the world be able to say that how are we working together, especially given so many of the crises that we are facing. And the Sustainable Development Goals were particularly good at doing that, at, at bringing in uh, things that people had put aside in the past, things like climate change, like inequality, like uh, the challenges of technology. And perhaps, uh, you know, they didn't anticipate COVID-19, but really within the, the Sustainable Development Goals framework, the essential need for global cooperation to get to all of these things is articulated and is very, very important. 
And in that sense, having gender equality as an aspirational goal, very squarely stated within uh, a global articulation of what what we want to be doing together and where we want to be going is very important. That said, (laughs) the sustainable development goals are not something that most of the world knows about. Many of the countries see it as that Christmas tree where they, and not just countries, but many of the interest groups that work on different issues, see it as that Christmas tree where you hang your ornament and it's just an ornament, therefore, to look at (laughs) rather than necessarily to work around. And I, you know, I want to be careful and say that there are many, many wonderful groups that are working towards achieving the different sustainable um, goals. And that's, I'm not saying they just sit there and nobody works on them. But what I'm saying is that probably uh, the average global citizen has no clue what the sustainable (laughs) development goals are. Uh, Probably more people in the global south know about it than the global north. Uh, More people in Europe know about it than in the United States. But still, I would say that the average uh, Indian citizen or South African citizen has no idea what they are. Actually, I was going to get to this question later, but it's fine to do it now. I I was quite shocked, however, um, as I told you in some um, informal remarks we had together uh, before this recording, um, that there is a, a World Economic Forum study that suggests that in India and China, for example, and of all countries, Turkey, I couldn't quite figure this out, but maybe I don't know much about Turkey, really. The knowledge of the SDGs is much more widespread than anywhere else in the world. And of course, India and China are a lot of people, half half the world's population. So I was kind of actually buoyed by that. I was going to end with this just so that we could end more optimistically. I mean, clearly the United States doesn't pay any attention to the UN. I mean, other than a podcast like this and Pass Blue, uh, published now at the New School. But, uh, you know, there's almost no coverage of the UN. You never even see it. The fact that this meeting is happening isn't even in the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, national or international newspapers. But, you know, if in fact people are being educated about this on the ground, um, the purpose of, of the SDGs last goal, as I mentioned, was building partnerships with NGOs, with corporations and business. And this study actually suggested more knowledge than I would have ever thought. I mean, it said about 25%, one in four in the world overall, but a little higher in those two countries, in those three countries. Um, and actually that's not terrible, I mean, in my view, but maybe I'm being overly uh, optimistic here. Yeah, well, that I guess maybe it tells us what lower bar we have set for ourselves uh, in understanding the influence of the uh, UN. And I I think that is sort of sad. Probably 50 years ago, a lot more people would have been interested and known. And I I do think one of the one of the challenges that continues that compared to the uh, Millennium Development Goals, which were set, you know, 15 years before the SDGs. Explain uh, the difference in why we went from five MDGs to 17 SDGs. Yeah, so there were eight uh, MDGs oh, eight. to 17. Um, yeah, 
and the um, the difference is that you know the idea of the Millennium Development Goals came about as we were t- approaching 2000, and those were goals set from 2000 to 2015, uh, where <clears throat> again the idea was that the world should come together and work on these shared problems together and very clearly define where we want to go and then uh, try to reach there together. And so they were very simple, very clear goals, and that's their power, you know, and hunger. Everybody can understand what that means, (laughs) right? Yeah, that's Um, one of the goals here, but there's so many others now. so, So things like that. But then when those goals you know, in 2015, when we looked back and see what we had achieved, we had achieved many things, but then there were many things we had not achieved. Um, so, you know, there had been uh, movement uh, on, let's say, looking at just gender, for example, on girls being enrolled in primary schools, uh, in uh, maternal health, uh, being uh, maternal mortality being uh, reduced. And some of it definitely can be attributed to the fact that there were the MDGs and people were putting a push behind achieving some of these goals. But gender equality was not articulated as a clear goal in the MDGs, and neither was inequality more broadly, neither was climate change, none of these uh, other things. And part of the issue for when when people were framing the sustainable development goals, which were set in 2015, and the clock started ticking 2016, and they're supposed to... They didn't want to develop a world that was not environmentally sustainable. So these were sustainable, uh, but also these more nuanced issues of inequality were more important. Water and sanitation had become a big issue by now. Um, You know, technology had become a big issue by now. And so people were facing all those things, which is why we now have 17 goals and I can't remember how many indicators. But that does, um, and part of the the interest in doing that also was to say that it's not just an agenda for the global south. It's not just about developing countries. It's about also developed countries. I don't think that despite those best intentions, that purpose has actually become the creed by which we are actually living, unfortunately. Well, although again, skipping forward in what I had thought the outline, but I think it actually, we should talk about it right now. I mean, recent an analysis of the SDGs shows that there are about 50 countries that are not meeting all of the targets, but meeting some of them. But of course, they're all the world's developed countries, the, the likely <laughs> ones, you know, the Scandinavian, Western European countries, a couple, actually, I was quite shocked to see this, the Czech Republic and Slovenia in Eastern Europe, you know, Canada, Australia, not the United States, of course, because we have so much inequality here. But but none of the poor countries are meeting them, although some, uh, as we'll get to in a, in a bit, are doing better than others on, on some of them. You know, I mean, you have vast differences in Africa and in Asia in terms of meeting some of these goals. But I, I think you're right. While we are now measuring progress in the global north, you know, in the developed world, this is still seen as a tool, really, for solving problems in the developing countries. Um, Although, again, as in the United States, when Social Security was given to everybody, not just poor people, I mean, I do think that the SDGs has achieved something in uh, not creating a stigma around, you know, meeting these 
or being measured as to whether you meet these targets. I mean, and showing also that, you know, those of us in the North who consume too much are making, are contributing to some of the problems, aren't resolving the problems well, vast inequalities in the developed, in, in the developed countries and including something like China, uh, which is sort of in between developing world and developed world are creating new problems um, and, uh, and need to be measured and judged and assessed and held accountable. Let's go back though and just unpack a little bit of what I said in the introduction in terms of you know the critique from uh, somebody like Bill Easterly. Is there a way of sequencing or prioritizing these goals that would make sense in terms of achieving one first so that perhaps it would have an impact on the others? What, in your view, as a, a person who's a practical, not just a scholar, but who was practically involved in designing these tools and, and in trying to measure progress, how would you sequence? How, what's, is there something more important is there, than something else? You know, will, one, will meeting one goal uh, hasten or, or uh, strengthen, you know, the ability of countries to meet another? Right. So I think I, you know, maybe <clears throat> it would be helpful to to focus on the gender equality goal, which is goal five, uh, which is the one I know best. But obviously, part of the logic this time around was that, in and this is a challenge that those of us aspiring to achieve gender equality are always stuck with, which is we have to have a two tiered approach, right? So if we don't create a goal on gender equality and highlight gender inequality per se, then, uh, and just say gender inequality exists in every other thing we do, which is true, right? Gender inequality exists in how we deal with climate change. Gender inequality exists in health. Gender inequality exists in economic development and so forth. And all of those sectors, all of those issues have to deal with gender inequality and improve it then gender inequality becomes so diffuse and so scattered that we don't realize its importance. Um, so we have to have a goal on gender inequality per se. On the other hand, if we only say, well, there's this goal on gender inequality and here are the five things we need to do with regard to that, then all these other things, you know, women's access to contraception, women's access to livelihoods, women's role in dealing with climate change, that just gets lost. So that's why we typically uh, use this, what we call a two-tiered approach, that you have to have gender equality as an issue and a goal embedded in all the goals, and then it has to be a goal by itself. But you are making a very important point, which is that a priori, uh, if we don't lift up 50% of the population that's women, we will never achieve these other goals of economic equality, quality education, good health and well-being. You know, but this seems so obvious, but people like you and me who have spent our entire careers talking about this realize how hard it is um, to make people understand that women are not just another vulnerable group that deserve rights and deserve opportunities, they are the key to unlocking the larger progress that the UN and its vast development institutions um, and the world, you know, uh, US and other developed countries in terms of their foreign policy 
that they are the key. And as I've said on this broadcast earlier, when we spoke specifically on women, um, you know, I always quote former Secretary of State Clinton, who said, you know, investing in women is not only the right thing to do, it's the smart thing to do if you want to achieve these other goals. But I know from a long career um, that it is very hard to to prioritize women. In fact, I would argue that the MDGs way back in 2000 were Kofi Annan's desire to sort of take a little of the focus off of women that had occurred as a result of the tremendous uh, attention that was given to the Beijing Women's Conference in 1995 in China and uh, the fifth year celebration in 2000 at the beginning of the year in which I was involved as a younger professional. Um, he, he really wanted to try to, to try to make everybody realize that the UN was really about more than just women, and yet women are so central uh, because we're half the population and have been held back for so many centuries. So I guess you're saying that priority one should be women. Uh, interestingly, in this same uh, World Economic Forum uh, poll of what the world knows about SDGs, the question was asked, well, what do you approve of? And of course, everybody uh, who was polled and knew something about it approved of ending hunger, uh, poverty, you know, inequality. But there was contention around gender equality, you know, the, the most effective tool for achieving the other goals. And you know, again, I guess 5,000 years of patriarchy is hard to unravel. And we know that culturally attitudes are, you know, still stuck in many parts of the world, including our own. I mean, witness our former president um, about uh, gender equality. Let, let's talk not only intellectually about what you would prioritize before we get back and dig down a little bit deeper into gender. Operationally, how might do you think the UN it would be effective? Are all of these targets and all of these measurements and all of the institutions that target and measure, I mean, you know, the UN has a vast development apparatus located all around the world, many agencies and cities. I mean, is there a better way to do this? You, you actually, tell us a little bit about how you set up the measurement you did with yeah. respect to so I think that that that's um, there are a number of challenges um, that we are facing. Uh, why we are not going to achieve <laughs> the gender goals, and when, why we're not going to, um, and we can talk about sort of the the pace of the progress. Um, I think one one challenge is that when we are very very busy in trying to get an issue on the agenda. Then the then you're very happy to and in the beginning for just saying you know we got our issue on the agenda and people are paying attention to it. So for example, we got the gender equality goal in the in there and we're very pleased uh, and we should be. But all the targets, all that you set a target, right? So for example, people who are working on health have been doing this for a really long time and they have really good, I shouldn't say great, but fairly good measures on a number of their targets, right? So we know, for example, where we are on uh, improving immunization uh, for children uh, and how many more children need to be immunized and which are the countries that are really lagging behind. So when those uh, people, the people who are experts set that target, they're pretty precise and they have pretty good measures for figuring out how they're going to 
move forward, they don't say we're going to immunize every child in the world on every disease. <clears throat> they instead they say our target is X million more children or um, uh, uh, immunized in these. 20 countries where immunization is really lagging, right? It's a very precise target. And then that allows you to have a very precise strategy for getting there. For gender equality, we have targets that say, we'll end child marriage. We will end violence against women. We will end, our targets are so aspirational. I mean, there's no realistic way we can end violence against women in 15 years. We haven't been able to do it for centuries, right? So how do, and we don't even have strategies for, for doing that. So, and we have a lot of debate and discussion within the field of how to even measure violence against women, because there's domestic violence, there's violence in the streets, there's sexual violence, there's all different kinds of violence. And what do we consider violence? It's grossly underreported. Um, and when we start measuring it, it'll actually go up for a while because people will start reporting it instead of going down. So there's so many practical challenges and our strategies for dealing with it are still very much uh, nascent. I mean, we can pass laws, but we know that they're far from sufficient. We can train police, but we know that that's not has not been the answer. We can get hospitals to start screening for women coming in having been beaten up, but you know that that goes only so far. Um, you know, I, I was just thinking that we now have that for protocol. For example, if most of you have ever gone to your doctor recently and you're a woman, they almost always ask you, are you feeling depressed? Has anything been happening to you? Um, and it's interesting, I, just for the sake of seeing seeing what happens, because I happen to be a researcher, <laughs> last time I said, yes, I was feeling depressed. And then my doctor didn't ask me anything more about it. <laughs> <laughs> so they checked off a box. And so if I was a woman who was suffering, what would I do? You know, my doctor would have done their job and I would still be in, in, in trouble. So we don't have clarity on that. So in that sense, um, I think our uh, having really good measurable targets, which is why, for example, I worked so hard to get the child marriage target in there and we work because that, as it turns out, out of the all the different uh, targets within the gender goal, it's the only one that's a high quality measured, measurable target, right? And even there, we were. I was trying to really work with people to calculate how far we can get in 15 years, but everybody really felt that it was, uh, advocacy-wise, it was better for us to say we'll end child marriage. Um, and we're not going to in, in by 2030. We are going to make good progress. Now, it is one of those areas where we do have a little bit better strategies. We know if we keep adolescent girls in school when they're 14 or 15, they're not going to get married. We well, know. I mean, doing that. I, I, I mean, I want to be a little bit optimistic because I think people, you know, all they hear is bad news. I mean, I was shocked to see, I had just written a, a piece about one of the pioneers in uh, women's rights in Ghana, who helped write the uh, convention to eliminate discrimination against uh, women. And I see that Ghana is actually moving ahead in educating girls yep. in 
secondary education. I mean, there has been progress around the world in primary education, but that really is not what makes a difference. What makes a difference is secondary schooling, which of course, you know, I, I always like to remind people, I'm an Amer trained as an American historian, not a demographer or sociologist like you, but being trained as an American historian is actually very useful when you look at gender in the contemporary world, because you, you have to remember that until a hundred years ago, women weren't educated beyond the eighth grade in the United States. So, you know, I mean, it, it's not as though the West, um, had you know tremendous progress for women, and, and we still have a long way to go. But we've made a lot of progress in the last hundred years, and you see that in a country like Ghana, there is progress being made, and that will have an impact on uh, employment, you know, decent jobs, uh, all of the other quality education, you know, good health and well-being. I mean, we we know that there's a direct parallel between. Uh, women's education and smaller families, uh, better health care, hunger. Uh, so all of these others um, will, you know, will be impacted by more girls graduating from secondary schools. Um, and, right. And, you know, it's not only Ghana, there are many other countries. I mean, certainly uh, where most people live in India and China, there's progress, not universal progress, but a great deal of progress made certainly in the cities. Um, but also beginning to go into the provinces and in, into the rural areas. I, I think that you raise a very important point. I think one of the cha challenges, I think, with regard to gender equality, achieving, making serious progress, is that, uh, first of all, many things are related. It is 50% of the world's population. It is the um, most lasting inequality that the the world has ever seen and that has been most universal, right? That most people are affected by. And it is the inequality that is embedded not just in our uh, public systems. It's not just inequality that women see in the workplace or women see in schooling or women see in the healthcare system. It's also embedded in our families, in our social lives, right? So it is very, very hard to uh, eradicate. So let's just take education as a as an example. Um, one of the things we are really slow to realize is that the bar that we have to achieve has to keep moving, and we seem to do one thing at a time rather than recognize that. Um, and I, I I think education is the best example of this. So, for example, in the MDGs, we said we need to get girls into school. That, that was, if there was anything focused on gender equality in the Millennium Development Goals, that was it. Girls' education was going to be the magic bullet, right? And there's, there's no question that girls' education is a very powerful, um, it, it, it probably is the single best investment anybody can make anywhere. There's, there's probably no question about it. But to expect that you're going to get five years of education for girls everywhere, and that's going to solve gender equality is crazy, right? Because guess what? What did we do? We shoved girls into schools that didn't have teachers. We, uh, they're coming out of fifth grade without learning how to read and write. And in 
we did this in in the 2000s when the global economy and the world was moving to a technology space that was leaps ahead of where you required a primary schooling. Although and now you have the tech gap in you know in girls and boys. You and and guess what? Even the developed countries are moving backwards on this. If you look at the rates of uh, women going into tech fields, if you look at the the rate of uh, STEM education for girls, um, it's been it's been going down instead of going up. So we we need to always be thinking ahead of where we need to to be going, which is why we should be thinking now about what happens to women's jobs when pandemics come. Which is why it is now we should be thinking about what happens um, to women and the burden of work they're going to face when climate change becomes a common problem. So we have to not only look at the problems that were of yesterday, we have to always be looking at the problems that are coming up, which is one reason why gender equality is such a challenge to achieve, because we constantly slip backwards also. And we slip backwards, not just because they're new problems, but because there's backlash. Well, Um, we're trying to uh, create uh, equal opportunity for women at a time when larger geo political forces are, uh, you know, and, and globalization of finance and of the economy are, uh, are creating greater inequalities for everybody. So it, it's, we also, obviously, I mean, we don't want to spend too much time on just women on this broadcast because we were supposed to talk about the larger questions. But I mean, you know, the pandemic showed us that um, when there is a slowdown in the economy, all so much progress that was achieved for women was completely wiped out. You know that when times are tough, last hired or first fired, and so forth and so on. That let me just again because I I, I constantly try to balance um, my pessimism and cynicism with some optimism. Point to the one hard indicator um, and one I think kind of impressive change that has occurred in the world, at least in the you know, in, in my 50 years of being a professional or almost 50 years, uh, and certainly in the last 25 since Beijing. Um, and it is one of the indicators used uh, on the gender equality uh, target, uh, or one of the targets uh, in the gender equality indicator, and that's female political representation, which mm-hmm. is improving in the world and yeah. which has been shown in hundreds of studies in a hundred countries to make a big difference. Um, and it's, uh, I mean, November 2020, in this recent um, UN Women report, in the EU, EU, women's representation in national parliaments is up to 32%. In the United States, it's risen considerably, and at local levels, it's even higher. I mean, with many, many more women. I mean, the New York City Council this week, for example, um, for the first time will have representation of more than 50% women, which is... I mean, I started in local politics with Carol Bellamy, who also went on globally to run UNICEF when you were there. She was the first woman elected to uh, head the New York City Council in 1977, not 1877, as I like to say to my students, but 1977. I'm old, but I'm not that old. And I've said that before here. You know, it's extraordinary to see, you know, five countries with gender balanced parliaments, women's representation, improving at a steady pace. And again, also in the developing world. And here we have 
knowledge about how to accelerate this progress, which is quotas, you know, and where you have quotas in places like Rwanda, for example, I mean, Rwanda is a bad example, perhaps because of larger concerns there about human rights, but you do have quotas and women have higher levels of representation. And the studies show that all of the other development indicators improve when women are members of um, parliaments, uh, hold national office or local office. So, you know, there are things we could do that would make a difference. Um, why is it so hard? Well, larger cultural factors, I guess. Um, maybe you have other ideas. Um, let's just wind up our conversation here. Uh, I find that we always get to gender because gender really is uh, the most critical tool. You know, if we have laws that provide you know, equal opportunities for women and, you know, laws against which they can measure their progress and laws that they can use to fight discrimination. The situation improves and these larger goals seem more achievable. But anything else you want to leave our listeners with in terms of how we can make progress here and what you might do, whether institutionally, um, at the global level or on the ground, one of the things that I think is really different at the UN is the public-private partnerships. I mean, we just had announcements of billions of dollars to achieve gender equality at the forum in Paris last week to mark the 26th now. It was meant to be the 25th anniversary of Beijing. Will this money make a difference? I mean, are, are public-private partnerships corporate uh, as well as NGO participation? Is this valuable? Is it important? I think that that we're going to I think we are at a at a point of reckoning globally and you know I'm afraid that my my view is generally that we are we have we're not in a good place I think we have lost ground I think that right now what has happened is and and you know this is this is common that the, a strategy that was a good strategy gets um uh, gets um, distorted, uh, gets uh, gets used not necessarily in the right way. So I think, you know, the idea that women's rights are not just the right thing to do, but the, the smart thing to do, that that that's what we have been doing for the last 20 years. And a lot of corporations, a lot of countries have been brought on board as a result of that to see gender equality as an important uh, thing, but the the sad, I think, uh, side effect of that has been that I almost feel like we have sold gender equality cheap. Uh, it it's it's easy for for a lot of global leaders and uh, corporate leaders and companies to say, oh yes, we are doing the right thing and the smart thing by um, uh, addressing gender equality. And then what they are actually doing is something fairly little. I mean, even when you look at the, look at the commitments that were made at the Global um, you know, Gender Equality Forum in Paris, it's $40 billion and it sounds like a lot of money. Uh, but a lot of that money is actually double commitments. Um, so it's money that was already committed to family planning or already committed, you know, to, to whatever. And if you think about the hundreds of billions of dollars that are needed to move 
big global issues forward. It's a drop in the bucket. I mean, if you look at the global development assistance uh, funds, for example, in the last decade, they the best that we have done is move from gender equality from getting like 3% of global funding to 5% of global funding. <laughs> it's nothing. It's a drop in the bucket. Now, yeah, unfortunately, I'm old enough to remember when the feminist economics, which made the point that, you know, investing in women strategically is the smartest yeah, thing to do. And first. I was one of them, you know. It's it just women talking to women, right. Now, at least we have it being discussed, at, you know, at the, among the global financial institutions, yeah, but but at the, the highest is, levels of government, the, the, the I, point I is that then it what what it has done, unfortunately, is put gender equality as a tool to achieve the things that they are aiming to achieve, and those things stay important, and lifting women and having power that women need to have is not really on the agenda. And that's something we need to, I think, revisit. It's time for the global feminist movement to do a reset in the world that we're living in today. And I'm not sure that this Gender Equality Forum necessarily did that, although I think I would agree that our coming together really helps us to see where we are and what we need to do going forward. So it is a good opportunity is that literally, other than Pass Blue, where Barbara Crossett, whom I met in Cairo in 1994, when she covered that brilliant, that, you know, International Population Development Conference brilliantly, other than her coverage, I didn't see one bit of press about it. I, you know, it's, Hillary Clinton spoke there in person in Paris, nothing in the newspapers. I mean, you know, the New York Times doesn't cover the UN. Not, I mean, these are larger issues of how you bring public attention to something if you have complete indifference by uh, the international press corps, at least in the United States. I mean, maybe it's better elsewhere. I, uh, I do remember that, uh, and again, this is, talks about what we might do largely to the SDGs to make them more effective tools and, you know, more to make more people aware of them. Uh, years ago uh, in Beijing, I had the fortune, good fortune at that time to be working for the Open Society Foundation, and I was able to use private funds to hire public relations people to work with the UN, and we got fantastic press. I mean, I always do feel that um, in a certain way, the MDGs occurred because of the outsized attention that suddenly women got at the UN, and you know, that there was a desire to balance things out. I think our time is over. I want to thank you, uh, Andrew Maholtra of the UN University, formerly of UNICEF and ICRW, a terrific organization measuring progress by women around the world, um, headquartered in Washington. Um, I want to remember, uh, remind our listeners to subscribe and rate International Horizons on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, my thanks to Huisto Buenov for his technical assistance and to Meryl Sobner for helping to produce this episode and to Duncan McKay for sharing um, the song International Horizons is the theme music for the show. Uh, my name is Ellen Chester. Uh, again, on behalf of the Ralph One Institute, I want to say thanks for joining us and look forward to having you with us for the next episode of International Horizons. Thanks, Ellen, and bye-bye.